Hey everyone, Pastor Brad here. I am very glad to be continuing in our series today. We've been looking at the book of Revelation, or better named the Revelation of Jesus Christ, or maybe better labeled the Revelation written down by John the Apostle, of Jesus, by Jesus, and about Jesus. And we have already covered a lot of ground in the series. We've talked about what Revelation is and what it isn't. It is not a book to, to map out the historical happenings of the world like, like fortune telling, although many have in fact used it that way. It's not a book to predict when Jesus is coming since Jesus himself made it very clear that no one can know the day or the hour of his return. Matthew 24, 24, verse 36. Jesus says, But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, you would think that would stop people, but it has not stopped many people from trying to use Scripture to protect the arrival of Jesus' second coming. There is a long list of those who have used Revelation as a way of interpreting and proclaiming the dawn of his return. In the year 1666, 1666, people thought that was a big deal that year, after the great London fire, which lasted three days, destroyed much of the city of London, including 87 churches and about 1,300 houses. Many saw that as, as a fulfillment of the end of the world kind of prophecy. And, and maybe we would if we heard all these churches had been burned down. They thought the end was coming within months. It didn't. In 1883, William Miller began preaching that the end of the world as we know it would occur with the second coming of Jesus in 1843. He attracted as many as 100,000 followers who thought that they would be carried off to heaven when that date arrived. And when the day came and went, Miller realized his calculations were off and he determined that it would actually be end in 1844. It didn't. More recently, a preacher by the name of Harold Camping predicted the end of the world as many as 12 times based on his interpretations of biblical numbers and, and imagery, the last of which was May 21st, 2011, when he said that only 3% of the world would actually survive. The world will end, he said. It didn't. And you better believe that there are movements today saying that COVID means that Jesus is coming. Some couldn't sleep on New Year's Eve because they thought that the world would wake up to the Great Reset. For decades, talk of a new world order has come and gone. And this, these conversations are, are more based on novel writers than they are on spirit-inspired words of the Apostle John. Revelation is a book that is rich in symbolism and surprisingly a book with no mention of words like rapture. No mention of words like antichrist, at least uh, not in the way that we might think. Revelation is a declaration that in a time where the world calls on Christ followers to give up on Jesus and rely on fear or, or fear earthly powers, in the middle of all that, tether yourself to Jesus. Now, historically, when will that take place? Well, it's always taking place. So is Revelation best interpreted as a book about what was happening to the church at the end of the first century? Or is it about during the times of, of Emperor Constantine? Or is it about the Middle Ages? Or is it about today? Or is it about the future? Yes, it's a pastoral letter meant to encourage, not instill fear in the church for all times. It's also a, a poetic book. It's full of metaphor and color and numbers. And it's not meant to be taken literally, but that doesn't mean it's not important or that it's not holding important truths that Jesus wants us to understand. But the, the poetic, apocalyptic writing that, that John is doing uses these things as tools to get to our hearts with, with symbols and colors and numbers, engaging all of our senses in a way that simply writing doctrine might not. 
But nothing new is being said in Revelation, as one, one pastor says. It's just being said in a different way. So it's poetic, but it's also apocalyptic, a word that is not meant to bring fear, but excitement. Apocalypse just means unveiling, being, being shown the larger reality, the whole story. After introducing himself as the cosmic Christ, the all-seeing powerful Christ, Jesus has a message for seven local churches. The number seven represents completeness. And so we can assume that these messages for these seven churches are meant for all of us, for the global eternal church, all those who are followers of the Lamb. So here we are. <laughs> and we've spent the last two months looking at these, these letters and gleaning from the words of Jesus. And today we come to, to the last church that we're going to look at. It's the sixth in the order in Revelation, but Pastor John Fortune walked us through the message to the church of Laodicea a few weeks ago, so you can go on YouTube and find that. Uh, we don't need to revisit that anymore. But today we're going to look at the church of Philadelphia. Uh, grab your Bibles, and we'll start by reading Chapter 3, verses 7 to 8 of Revelation says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, something that stands out immediately is this. There, there's no word of correction for the church in Philadelphia. Maybe if it was the, the church in Philadelphia in, in the United States, maybe, but this Philadelphia in ancient Asia Minor, no word of correction. You've been faithful. They haven't denied Jesus, even though they've been given opportunity to do so, even though they, they could have come up with all sorts of reasons to excuse themselves, they have remained faithful. And once again, we see the authority of Jesus established at the beginning of this letter. He is the Holy One, the one who is separate from all others. He is the true one, the word of truth. We need to listen to him. He is the one who has the keys of David, it says in verse 7. It was a, a repeated promise by the Old Testament prophets that the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one of God, would be from the offspring of the great ancient king of Israel, King David. And so when the angel of the Lord tells Mary in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, that, that she's expecting a, a child, the importance of the child, the savior of the world, the angel says this in verse 32 of, of Luke chapter 1, he will be great and he will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is saying to, to Philadelphia, that's me, and I come with authority, the power to open and the power to shut. Specifically, that, that's talking about the power of a king to open and shut gates, to allow people in or to lock them out. Jesus says, I'm the ultimate authority of welcoming in and locking out. It says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this is because you're faithful, because you've not denied me, the gates of my city are open to you. Now, that would mean a few things to, to the church in Philadelphia. First of all, an open door in an ancient city is about safety. 
And Philadelphia, this even means more. Philadelphia was built on the edge of an active uh, volcanic area. It meant it was, it, it was great for farming because the, the nutrients in the earth were great for farming, but it was also dangerous because there were always tremors and there were always earthquakes. So there was this constant back and forth of the people of the city of Philadelphia running out of the gates when there was danger of buildings falling on them and then returning when the danger was over, returning to the safety of the walls at night. Some for safety and, and maybe out of fear uh, left the city every night actually and slept outside the city walls in case an earthquake came in the middle of the night. Jesus says, I have the power to open and to shut the door and I have opened it for you. You are, you are welcome into my city. In the same way that a, a, a city offers safety, I am an unshakable city. I'm a, I'm a refuge that you need not run from. I offer a security that no earthly power can so that's one aspect. There's the safety aspect of open doors. But this open door was, was not only about security, it was most likely also about opportunity. Behold, I have set a door, I've set before you a door which no one is able to shut, he says. Throughout the New Testament, the opportunity to share the gospel, the, the society-changing, culture-redeeming power of God, the, the, the idea of, of sharing that with the surrounding nations was often described as an open door. So in Acts, when Paul's visiting a church in Antioch, he says in Acts 14, 27, it says that they arrived and they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the, to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says, for a, a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. In another letter Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Jesus says, Philadelphia, I am giving you an open door to be an influence for my kingdom. Now, what's interesting is that Philadelphia itself was actually established in 140 BC with one main purpose. It was a mission to Hellenize the known world. It was an outpost to spread the language, the culture, the worldview of the Greeks. And it, so it's kind of like Jesus is saying, this place that was once an outpost for all the world, all that the world had to offer, its promises, its, its delights, its, its culture and ideologies, it's now gonna be a place where the kingdom of light is proclaimed. Now, we see this throughout Revelation. Darkness does not like giving in to light. The kingdom of darkness is going to claw even as it's being defeated. It'll happen from the outside and it often seemingly happens from the inside. In Philadelphia, the, the, much like the church in, in Smyrna that we read in chapter 2, there's an attack on those that Jesus loves and Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. Who, who, who think they're the special property, that they have a certain authenticity that the Christians in Philadelphia do not, that they have a relationship, a belonging to God that those who claim Christ don't. In verse nine of chapter three, it says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. It was, it was a constant struggle in the New Testament letters. How do Christ's followers fit into the eternal story of God's redemption? And with the emergence of the church came the question, how do Jews fit into the new community that God has created through Jesus? 
Much of Paul's writings in books like Romans and or letters to the Romans or, or Galatians deal with that question. Through Jesus, God has created a new ecclesia, a new community that welcomes everyone from every ethnicity. So what does that mean for the religious Jew and for the, the Jewish nation that found its roots in a common history not shared with all these new Gentiles who just showed up and wanna worship the same God? who want to act like adopted children. This is the ongoing language of the New Testament, of what it means to belong to God. This is what Paul writes about in Ephesians 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, in Galatians 4, verse 5, he writes that, that God sent his son, God sent Jesus, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So through Jesus, it was like an adopted child being welcomed into a new family, being shown love by parents and, and given all the same love and attention and rights and affection as those who had been adopted years before, who, who've known the father longer, who have a history with the adopted parents, who, who act as if they've been a part of the family forever, act as if they were naturally born into the family. And it's as if these people are reminding newcomers over and over that they're not really a part of the family. They don't have a history with the father. That was, that's what's going on in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. The local Jewish community in the city is like a, a bullying older sibling saying, sibling saying you, you don't belong here. Not the way I belong here. Not the way we belong here. Jesus says, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They'll, they'll get it one day. They'll get it one day. So we learn a few things here. First of all, we need to remember that God sees all and will ultimately deal with injustice. Christ, the all-seeing cosmic Christ, will see. He sees and he knows. Man, how much frustration and injustice do, do, do we walk through and we, 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 we get anxious about because we feel like it will not be dealt with God says, I see it. I see the rumors. I see harsh words, misunderstandings. I will deal with it. And when we don't let God deal with it, it just steals life from us. So Paul says in Romans 12, verses 17 to 19, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I tell you, as Christians, we are invited to fight against the injustices imposed on others, but leave God to fight for the injustices imposed on us. The greatest word of God to Jews and, and, and everyone else was, was through the humility and the love of Jesus. Through, through Christ, God had created a new community that welcomed all. And if, and if that's true, if we believe that, if the church in Philadelphia believed that, then the proper response for the church in Philadelphia was not animosity to the synagogue in Philadelphia, but prayers and tears and struggling for them in prayer. The Apostle Paul, who was a first century Jew, who came to see Jesus as the greatest expression of God's heart uh, um, and, and God's mission, says this in Romans 9, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He means fellow Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It broke Paul's heart, but many Jews would not believe. And it, it was a struggle Paul always had. What's our de- default with those who reject Jesus? What's our default with those who have a, a drastically different worldview than we have? Is it immediately to match their animosity? Or is it a broken heart for the lost? Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the model we're called to. In an impatient, fearful world, we are to be conduits of peace, ambassadors of a a new kind of Christ-formed community. This is what's happening in in Philadelphia. And so Jesus moves on in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. Well, that's a great promise in Revelation. I will keep you from trial? Hey, I'll take that. (laughs) This promise isn't made to every church of the seven churches. It's not made to every believer. But God offers this grace to the church in Philadelphia. In Smyrna, they were being warned, if you look back at at chapter two, they're being warned about being thrown in prison. I wonder if after this was read in Smyrna, some of them might say, why don't we move to Philadelphia? But I think there's also something we need to learn here. And that's that one church's story is not necessarily our church's story. One individual's story is not necessarily the same as another individual's story. The cosmic Christ who sees all does not not throw a discipleship template on everyone. It's not a one-size-fits-all program for our sanctification. I mean, in Romans 8, 28, it says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But that path... The the all things of Romans 8.28 can look very different for each of us. Some will endure more trial. Some will will look at and will think, they they just seem so blessed. Well, Jesus is Lord of both stories. And the call either way is for patience, for humble endurance. In verse 11, Jesus says this. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, two words in in this verse are are important. The first is the word soon. I am coming soon. The the Greek word here is is more about how than about when. It's more about how than about when. I will come suddenly, Jesus is saying. Not it's going to be tomorrow. It's suddenly, it's going to be quickly. So be ready because you don't know when it's going to be. So hold fast to what you have. That means hold tightly, protect it at all costs. And so hold fast to what? Your crown, he says. Don't let your crown be torn from your your hands. The word for crown is is not talking about a gold crown that a king wears, but a victory wreath. It's the kind of crown you receive when you've run a race well, when you're standing on the podium. And Jesus is saying that's for those who conquer, those who persevere. And you've already been given that crown because of your association with Jesus. So do not let go of it. Don't let go of the identity and your position in Jesus. Finally, we see this beautiful picture that Jesus offers, this beautiful message to the church in Philadelphia. In verse 12, he says, the one who conquers, the one who holds onto their crown, their identity in Christ, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now, imagine you are a Christ follower in Philadelphia. You've been told that you do not truly belong to God. You're not welcome into the community of those adopted by God, or you're made to feel less. And Jesus says these words to you. Actually, don't worry about not being allowed to worship in the synagogue. You are in the very foundation and ground floor of something much bigger, something eternal. Jesus points to an ancient promise of, of, of foreigners, those outside the Jewish nation, being welcomed into his family, being given a home. In Isaiah 56, verse 5, it says, I will give in my, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It was, it was a, a practice in the ancient Greco-Roman world to, to honor people of the city by inscribing their names on the monuments and the stones that made up the city. As if to say, you, you've helped or you help make this city what it is. Like an important stone that is, that is part of the entire city. And so we want to forever associate your name with the city. You are forever a part of this city. You will always belong here. In the case of the church in Philadelphia, the synagogue can tell you that you don't belong. You may be seen as having little power. And you may seem small to the world but you have an eternal home. You you are built into my kingdom and my kingdom is built into you. The name of your eternal home, New Jerusalem, is written on you and in you. Oh, and not only is the name of the city you belong to written on your heart, the God you belong to is as well. We have paving stones in, in our backyard that are in our, in our garden, uh, gifts that were given to me for Father's Days uh, back when my children were smaller and they have their small handprints and their names in this, these concrete um, stones in my backyard. And they continue to remind me of the family I belong to, where my allegiance lies. Those stones remind me that the work I do in the backyard is for my family. The memories that have been created in the backyard and, and in the house are all wound up in the story of my family. These stones remind me that we're building something together. It reminds me of, of what is important to me. They, they remind me of what I will, I will say yes to and what I will say no to for the sake of my family. Ever wonder why Christ followers sometimes don't feel at home in this world? You ever wonder why many Christ followers, maybe you, you're kind of confused by the things that the world pursues? It seems foreign. Why it seems like it's hard to completely side with a political affiliation. It feels like we're compromising in some way. Well, that's because our ultimate affiliation is with Jesus. Our ultimate citizenship is with new Jerusalem. Jesus says, you're an important part of the architecture of this kingdom. Other kingdoms and affiliations will come and go, but they're not secure. But our home is being preserved in heaven. And this new Jerusalem is where everything is heading. This is where history is heading. The city that every heart cries out for. See, after every war, every power, after all the options and pursuits have been exhausted, a new heaven and a new earth will be the backdrop of new Jerusalem. The safe, eternal refuge of God and his people. In Revelation 21, that's where we hear about this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, chaos was gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
See, so the simple question for you and I today is, of which city are we truly residents? Where does our hope truly lie? Where is our focus? If our hopes are nailed down to this earth, we will find ourselves tired and continually searching for purpose that cannot be satisfied, continually threatened by a world that that draws lines to decide who is in and who is out. We'll find ourselves continually hungry for something that all the products of this world just cannot satisfy. As C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That's the new Jerusalem. That's the eternal kingdom. The message to the church in Philadelphia, like all the books of Revelation, is, is a challenge to get our affiliations right. The cosmic Christ will put all things right. The resurrected Christ will come, so hold fast persist. Continue with patient endurance. Because if you are on the side of the resurrected Jesus, you are on the right side of history. God of grace, thank you so much. Oh, for your grace, for your forgiveness, for the way you've welcomed us, you've adopted us in as your children, with all the rights that come with being your children. We thank you for the promises of hope and peace that come along with your kingdom. And God, it can be difficult when we, we feel the, word, the world kind of pushing against us with a different worldview, with a, a secular idea of viewing uh, morality uh, that, that wants to infiltrate how we do life together, how we do marriages, how we do family, how we work, how we view our bodies. And so I pray for us that much like the church in Philadelphia, we would have a a calm persistence that is based on the knowledge that we are welcome in your family, that we have an eternal citizenship in New Jerusalem. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for giving us community and belonging in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I love you, and I cannot wait to see you again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he give you his peace. Amen. God bless you.